Welcome to The Landscape, your show about the outdoors and America's public lands. I'm Aaron Weiss from the Center for Western Priorities in Denver. I'm Kate Gretzinger in Bluff, Utah. On the show today, we're talking about our new report called The Camping Crunch. Our colleague Tyler McIntosh looked at 16 million reservations for campsites on public lands, which is basically every reservation made since 2014, and discovered that our campgrounds are more popular than ever. So we're going to talk to him about how we keep expanding access to the outdoors without loving them to death. Tyler will join us in just a minute, but first, a quick news update. As we are recording this on Wednesday afternoon, we expect the Biden administration to propose a new EPA rule cracking down on methane emissions up and down the oil supply chain. This would be a very big deal since methane is one of the worst greenhouse gases in terms of trapping heat. It will also give President Biden something tangible to tout when he heads to the U.N. Climate Summit in Glasgow next week. It's one step forward, two steps back for Joe Biden on climate action, since it appears Senator Joe Manchin is successfully stripping almost all of the major climate provisions out of the Build Back Better Act. The bill was a collection of carrots and sticks to encourage renewable energy while discouraging carbon emissions. But it looks like the sticks are all gone, which leaves just incentives to do the right thing and no punitive measures for polluters. And of course, just days after the president gets back from Scotland, the Interior Department will lease off 80 million acres in the Gulf of Mexico. If industry buys those leases, it could generate up to 1 billion barrels of oil over the coming decades. So this is a great time to remind you to subscribe to our morning newsletter, Look West, since we will continue to track the latest on the EPA methane rule, those upcoming lease sales, and the climate provisions in the reconciliation bill. Shows up every morning in your inbox, and it is, of course, completely free. There's more than a little irony in Joe Manchin taking the climate teeth out of the budget bill, since his state of West Virginia leads the nation in the amount of core infrastructure that's at risk for severe flooding. We're talking about things like fire stations, water treatment plants, hospitals, and roads. Nearly half the roads in West Virginia are routinely hit by severe floods. And of course, those are the types of infrastructure that will be even more at risk as climate change increases the amount of flooding and power outages across the country. A new poll from the Associated Press and the University of Chicago shows just how out of touch Manchin's position is compared to the American people. And I should note, it is not just Manchin. The entire Republican Party is also opposed to spending money to fight climate change. The AP climate poll is long. It's a great read. There's a link in the show notes. But here's one of the findings that really struck me. Pollsters asked voters how much they would be willing to pay towards a nationwide fee on carbon emissions, otherwise known as a price of carbon tax. On average, voters said they would pay $40 a month to stop climate change. That's equivalent to a carbon price of $30 per ton. But Manchin, and even some senators who are otherwise pretty good on conservation issues, like John Tester from Montana, well, they outright rejected a carbon price of just $15 per ton, half of what Americans already say that they are willing to pay. The poll found strong support for a nationwide clean energy standard that would decrease our reliance on coal and natural gas while increasing renewable energy sources. That's another one of the provisions that Manchin forced out of the budget bill. And the gap there isn't even close. More than half of Americans support a clean energy standard, while just 16% are opposed. So if there's one takeaway from these last few weeks as we watch the sausage get made in Washington, it's that the American people are way ahead of their representatives in Congress when it comes to addressing the climate crisis. 
Let's bring in another member of the Center for Western Priorities team. Tyler McIntosh is our data and design guru, and he just released a very deep dive into America's campgrounds. The report is called The Camping Crunch, and if you want to follow along with this conversation, there is a link in the show notes. Tyler, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Aaron. Great to be here. So first things first, what did you learn when you started looking at campgrounds? Um, so... For this report, we looked at trends for peak season um, reservable campsites across the country, and we saw that the popularity of camping on our national public lands has just skyrocketed um, between the period of time from 2014 to 2020. I found an estimated 39% increase in occupancy um, across the entire country for that time period, and in the West, it was even higher, um, so estimating a 47% increase there. That's a pretty huge increase there in in a short amount of time. Um, where did all this data come from? I mean, had no one bothered looking at, at this before? So if you've ever reserved a campsite on national public lands, chances are you probably used the website recreation.gov. I have. And yep. this website has data that's actually available to the public. So this is a subset of that data um, that's been downloaded um, and analyze in addition to some other information from the Recreation Information Database team. And I have found some people that have looked at subsets of the data, um, for example, just national parks or just the top 10 national parks. But I haven't found an analysis that's as wide in scope as this one. How many campgrounds are we talking about here? Um, we're talking about a huge number of campgrounds. This is over 16 million reservations um, that was analyzed. Wow. So hundreds over a thousand campgrounds yes. I mean, get, I, what's the yeah a whole whole big number how did you end up tackling that a, a very big data set covering the whole country not just the west uh what, what did you do to to figure out what's going on here um so i guess first of all the data set is a bit tricky to work with and in some ways makes sense to me that people haven't worked with it a ton due to the fact that it's changed hands a number of times so the first phase of this was really just cleaning the data, going through, making sure that everything was in the same format um, and able to be used. It's also one thing to look at a number of reservations, and it's another to try and actually place those numbers into the context of available sites that are available to be reserved. So first I went through and created a database of every number of, re of the number of reservations made in every facility on every day, as well as the number of campsites that were existing in the database for that facility on that particular day. And by comparing those, we can get a relatively good estimate of the occupancy um, on that day. And in terms of what happened there, especially in the last couple of years, it looks like we've got a, a number of you know, campgrounds, campsites, especially around national parks that are basically just filling up entirely come, come peak season. Yeah, that's definitely true, um, especially in very popular national parks. Some of these campgrounds are extremely full. That's certainly not the case in every national park. You can find plenty of campgrounds in national parks that aren't chock full. But it's absolutely true that national parks are some of the most popular places to camp in the United States. And I suppose that brings us to the, the main limitation here, which is this this is just reservation data. So first come, first serve campgrounds, which is basically almost all of the Bureau of Land Management, that's not going to show up here, right? This is just the ones you can reserve ahead of time. That's exactly correct. It also d certainly doesn't include um, things like distributed distributed camping. You know, when you're 
dispersed. Just heading out into the into the backcountry yeah, on your own. On of course, the backcountry right? in yeah. Forest Service, anything like that. But this is the folks doing doing the car camping, the tent camping, uh, the RVs, that sort of thing. Yeah, um, and it, it's also worth mentioning that some of this data certainly has caveats as well. There, this doesn't take into account a lot of closures of campsites or cancellations simply because that information wasn't recorded in some sure. of these older data sets. So one of the takeaways here is that better data will lead to better management. That said, a few of the newer data sets that I worked with are much better. So I was able to sort of compare um, data sets and found that these estimates are generally within about 15% of uh, the more accurate data. So you don't you don't necessarily want to draw conclusions about specific campgrounds, but there are certainly big trends you can you can pull out here. So so how could the Park Service, the Forest Service, um, Bureau of Reclamation, how could they use this sort of analysis to guide their future planning around around camping and campgrounds? I think this is a tool to advocate for the funding that they need and help direct resources. Certainly, many protected areas and agencies are going to have their own internal records and databases to use. Um, but those might not allow for some of these overarching comparisons across the country and across different agencies. I, I think the one of the biggest things here is just that this is another data point in a long string of data points that shows how popular these public lands are. Um, it's not a bipartisan issue, and we should be funding these lands appropriately. So if you're talking to, to say, a member of Congress then about funding national parks, funding campgrounds outside of the National Park Service uh, as well. You know, what, what does this lead you to, to, to notice or, or to find what the, what the needs are? Um, I, so I think there's a, a few things here. One of the biggest surprises that I had um, was that a part of the story is that there's a fundamental shift in the way that people are understanding and relating to public lands. So when we look at 2014, for example, national parks are far and away the most crowded, and they remain the most crowded across the entire time frame that I looked at. But between that time period, other lands that were less popular originally had much larger estimated growth. Um, so this tells me that people are discovering types of public lands that weren't as popular in the past. And I would hypothesize that that trend is only going to continue. People are going to continue discovering the wonders of our country's refuges, national monuments, um, and even regular Forest Service and BLM lands. And when we talk about this issue and funding for campgrounds um, and staff, we often focus on national parks because those are what's in the public eye the most and where we see some of these crazy overcrowding stories. But we also need to be thinking about how we're funding some of the less popular agencies for visitors um, because those are only increasing and they're going to continue doing so. It sounds like it's more more proof of, of this notion that national parks become hubs for recreation and conservation um, and that it's the lands around them as well that become more important when you have a national park designation. That's absolutely true. And it's certainly something that I found in the data actually is that while national parks are the most popular, even the campsites right outside of those national parks on BLM lands and Forest Service lands, for example, um, are more popular than other public lands. And I, I think another really important takeaway here is that protected areas in general are more popular than average public lands. 
um, even if you remove all of the national parks that are ex- all the national parks, not just that are extremely popular and the areas around them, protected areas are still more popular than your average public land. So the highest quality data that you have here is 2019 and 2020, which is interesting because that means we have just before and during the peak of the pandemic to look at when Americans were generally not traveling, but also when they were traveling, traveling to get outdoors because you couldn't stay inside in the summer of of 2020. So what did that look like here looking across those two years and what will you be looking for once we get 2021 data? So um, the pandemic absolutely had an impact on this. And we're seeing an estimated 15% growth from just 2019 to 2020, which is pretty large in one year. And Especially I feel, considering the rest of the economy basically shut down, right? <laughs> yes. And I feel confident saying that's um, a pretty dramatic underestimate. I, I guess looking ahead to what we might see this year certainly would be safe to assume a, a similar, similar sum of increase if Americans were traveling, but but still having the pandemic affect things. I would guess. I would think that's absolutely true, um, and I would expect to see that reflected in the data when we get the next data set. And one thing that will be really interesting here is seeing if this spike continues post COVID. Right two, three, four years after this, are people still continuing to make use of public lands in the way that they are right now during the pandemic? Has the pandemic permanently changed habits in the way that that Americans get outside? I think that that makes a whole lot of sense. What was the biggest surprise for you when you started looking at all this? I think one surprise for me just personally um, was how many campgrounds there are on U.S. Army Corps of Engineers lands. Um, living mm-hmm. in the rest, I grew up in Wyoming. Um, you know, I personally recreate on BLM lands, Forest Service lands, um, but realizing that in much of the country, those public lands aren't there, um, and many of these campsites are on Army Corps of Engineers lands, and sure. it's honestly where some of the vast majority of reservations are being made on our public land system. Very interesting. So you don't think of the Army and the Army Corps as providing camping services, especially if you live out west. But um, I suppose that's that's very true. And I, and I guess that that gap between of uh, campgrounds near uh, protected areas, um, you looked at that by region. And the one region in which there is a really big gap is, in fact, the Northeast. Um, where it's clear that protected areas make a huge difference in where America's Americans want to camp. That's absolutely true. Um, and I think that really reflects the fact that the Northeast is in many ways um, one of the most heavily developed areas of the United States. Um, mm-hmm. There's not as many um, areas that are left in their natural state. And that really shows me the importance of protected areas, of ensuring that these spaces do remain Um, even as development occurs and that people really love those areas that have been saved and protected and they cherish them. So looking just at the West, um, since obviously on this podcast, it's what what we focus on, uh, how big an increase has there been uh, in in camping uh, reservations, especially in in the summers? Specifically in the West, um, I'm, I'm estimating about a 47% increase, um, wow. which is okay. 
huge. It's higher than we saw nationally. Um, and that's um, generally the same trend across all states in the West and um, across the country with, you know, those few exceptions. Walk us through some of the the most crowded, biggest crunch spots in the West. I'm, I'm looking at your map right now, and, and there are some maybe not big surprises. Rocky Mountain National Park, well above 90%. Grand Canyon National Park. Uh, Zion is are in there. Are there some other spots that that surprised you that are filling up that maybe folks don't think of as those kinds of of e ticket attractions? But clearly, there's there's a need for for more facilities there. Um, I I think one big thing that I noticed is certainly areas near those national parks that you're talking about. Right, it's not just that they're crowded, but that the Forest Service campsite immediately outside might be crowded, and it is possible that we're not funding those places in necessarily the same way as we are those national parks themselves. Sure. So to, to use Rocky mountain national park as an example, since it's here in here in our backyard, it's the, the surrounding national forest, Arapahoe and Roosevelt national forests have some very crowded campgrounds just outside of the park boundaries. Definitely. Um, and especially, yeah, Colorado, um, since that's where I'm living right now, um, is somewhere that there's a ton of crowding on public lands, and that's not just in the national parks. It's also in some of those really popular wilderness areas um, and other places um, sort of across the state. I suppose by the same token, there are a few uh, surprising little dots of green on here in areas that you might expect to be very crowded. Did you find any maybe uh, diamonds in the rough or, or campgrounds where you would be able to, to get in and get a reservation uh, in, in the summer. Are there, how, how can you end up using this tool the next time you're going out camping? Um, so I did find some of those places, but I'm not going to spill those secrets here. Um, <laughs> Go find them yourself. I, I can say that everyone else has the opportunity to do that and look for some room to roam. Um, I built out all of this data and analysis into an interactive website where you can explore maps of the facilities near you. Um, so I think that this is a great tool for people that are looking to get a bit more off the beaten path and get a sense of where they might be able to find a camping reservation. Nice. All right. So then walk us through how you use this tool. How do you explore? What are you going to look for? Walk, walk us through what you built here because there are a whole lot of moving parts and there are a lot of cool things to explore. So on this page, you'll find a number of graphs. Um, a lot of them are interactive and you can use some different filters to see how things like weekdays versus weekends um, impact those trends. And then there are also a good number of interactive maps. On those, you can scroll around, check out any facilities that might be near you. And you can also use a number of filters to look at things like just 2019 data, just 2020 data. Um, if you want to just look at weekends um, or just a particular part of the year. Um, and as you do that, um, all of the information on those maps will change accordingly um, so that it's responding to what you're interested in looking at. And that's especially fun because you can filter just by state. So if you're if you're in Idaho and you want to see what's going on uh, at campgrounds in your state, you can just zoom in there. I, it's I mean it's it's going to be a great tool I know for for me for planning 
planning road trips and camping to to look at all of this. Last question before we go. If you get five minutes with the Interior Secretary or five minutes with the upcoming new National Park Service director, what do you show them from from this data that you think is gonna gonna move them the most to recognize what the need is? I think that you show them um, the incredible popularity of, yes, our national parks, but also those other protected areas. Um, these are the places that people are drawn to, um, and we need to be protecting more of these places across the country so that people generations out from now can have that same experience of camping on our beloved public lands that people are having right now. I think that's where we'll leave it then. Tyler McIntosh here with us at the Center for Western Priorities. The report is called The Camping Crunch. There's a link right there in the show notes. Tyler, thank you so much. Thank you, Aaron. Now for the good news. This is a story that neither Aaron nor I expected to like. It's about rock climber Alex Honnold's mother, who is, in fact, also a record-breaking climber. The New York Times has a great story out on Deirdre Wallenick, who celebrated her 70th birthday this year by climbing El Capitan, making her the oldest person to ever do so. She used ropes, unlike her son, who was the first person to climb the sheer 3,000-foot face without a harness or any safety equipment. What made this story exceptional to me is that Wallenick started climbing only 10 years ago, and she did it in order to connect with her son. I thought back to our podcast with Tommy Caldwell earlier this year. Tommy is Alex's climbing partner. Uh, and as I, I read that interview, I thought back about Tommy making it clear what a spiritual experience it is for him being up on El Cap. And Deirdre talked about that to the Times as well. She didn't even start climbing until she was about 60 years old. Uh Alex was injured and she said, hey, will you take me to the climbing gym? And lo and behold, I guess it runs in the family or backwards, perhaps, in the family. <laughs> yeah, it must be genetic. Um, well, let's wrap this up with some words from Wallenick herself. She told The Times, I learned how to suffer through all kinds of discomfort because what you get from it makes it worthwhile. It's the same for anybody who wants to follow a path of bliss. There's a lot of suffering. With climbing, you just have to deal. It's not like you can say, oh, it's raining. Let's go back to the car when you're 2,500 feet up. It's such a privilege to be up there. Climbers get to go to the most unimaginable, beautiful, inspiring places. And the only way to experience them is to put in the hard work. Go read the whole story in the New York Times. It's one of the most wholesome and inspiring pieces of writing I've read in a long time. I hope you like it. Well, that's it for this episode of The Landscape. As always, you can find links to everything we talked about in the show notes. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you are listening to us. And we always love your feedback and ideas for guests that we should talk to. Send those to podcast at westernpriorities.org. On behalf of the whole team at the Center for Western Priorities, I'm Kate Gretzinger. And I'm Aaron Weiss. Thank you for listening.